and ride with me in my foul life. Real, um, you met Larry. I'm trying to remember the story 100%, but you guys met through another mutual friend that you went to college with. That's correct. correct, Larry. That's correct. It was uh, Louis. Louis Cole. So Louis Cole was in New Zealand, coming out of the hunting camp um, there in New Zealand, and Larry was going into the hunting camp, and both of them had Delta State University shirts on. And they go, "Where'd you get that shirt?" And he goes, "Where'd you get that shirt?" And he said, "Well, I went there." And he said, "So did I." And then lo and behold, uh, they became fast friends, and we were looking for somebody to go hunting with us up in uh, Canada to go caribou hunting, and I asked Louis. He said, I can't go, but I know this guy that I just met named Larry Shores. Call him up and ask him. So I, I called Larry, not knowing him from Adam, and introduced myself and told him who I was and what was going on and asked him if he'd like to go. And he goes, absolutely, I'm there. Next thing you know, there's a group of uh, eight of us that are up in Canada hunting together, and all eight of us have been friends ever since then, all from a, a meeting of another friend halfway across the world in uh, New Zealand. So that's how Larry and I've got to know each other over the years. Does Louie work for SCI? He's a volunteer for SCI. He's so he's one of the, the vice presidents on the executive committee of SCI. And Larry's uh, the chair of the audit committee right now within SCI. What year did you become a member of SCI, Larry? I'm not sure. I'd have to say it become in the 80s sometime, but I'm not exactly sure. A long time ago. 80s? Absolutely. Have you hunted your whole life? Pretty much, yep. I've hunted all over the world with lots of different countries. And when you say you've hunted your whole life, was it something that as a six, seven, eight-year-old you were getting into with your dad or your grandpa in, in Florida? Yeah, that's a fact. Uh, I had one grandfather who liked to hunt. Uh, I had one grandfather who liked to fish. and had a father who liked to do both. So I got to hunt and fish a lot when I was a kid. <laughs> and uh, I graduated from squirrel hunting up to bigger game. Squirrel hunting. Laird's famous for saying he loves to hunt squirrels. Hey, I love to hunt anything. Do you like to eat squirrel? Yeah, I eat them. I is it to too them. much work for what you get out of it? What's the obsession with it? Is, it? is it just because the meat is so flavorful? It's good. I mean, in, in the hunt, the, the thrill of the hunt, going after that squirrel, and he's going around and around that tree up there, you're having to go around and around that tree trying to get him. I mean, it's, it's just a lot of fun. But most important thing is, is you're out in, out in the woods. That's the key is you're out hunting. So you could honestly say that a squirrel in Alabama or Mississippi – get you going as much as a Cape Buffalo in, in one of the countries in Africa? 100%. Really? I've hunted all over the world, and people ask me what I like to uh, hunt, and I say DDT. And they go, you like to hunt DDT? And I say, yeah, deer, ducks, and turkeys. Deer, ducks, I said, and I've turkeys. hunted in Africa. I've hunted in South America, all throughout Europe, you know, Asia Pacific, Asia, all those different countries, and favorite thing to hunt is DDT, deer, ducks, and turkeys. So how do you meet? How do you roll into this picture, Will? You meet Larry, uh, how? Well, so back in like 2009 or thereabouts, Larry and I were hunting with the same company in Zimbabwe. And uh, there's some African hunting forums and we were, you know, back and forth and, and kind of introduced ourselves to one another through that. Uh, but just through hunting with this, some of the same people, knowing the same people, being in the same camps, we, we started a conversation. And then, you know, that conversation uh, online then became, you know, phone and in person and then making trips and doing stuff together. And, um, you know, that's almost 15 years ago now. Uh, but yeah, just just hunting and then the the love of Africa and turkey hunting and duck hunting, wing shooting, all that stuff uh, brought us all together. And since then, we've uh, you know hunted all over. So this hunt comes about. We are asked by SCI corporate 
um, to be part of the original chapter, which is Los Angeles, which is hard to believe for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The original Safari Club International chapter is based in Los Angeles. We're asked to be a part of it. So we donate this hunt package with Rocky Merlot and Merlot Waterfowl. How do you end up becoming the buyer? What gets you going about coming to California and purchasing this hunt? Well, I know the guy quite well who was running the, the, uh, the uh, fundraiser there in LA and he sent me the information trying to get me to, uh, to come out, uh, come out and bid on it. But I was just back from Mexico, Turkey and I couldn't do it. So when I saw this, I'd never hunted waterfowl in California and I love to hunt waterfowl. So I thought, Hey, I'll bid on this thing and see if I can get it. So you, you put a bid in from Florida. Like, was it online auction? Actually, Gene Campbell woke me up at about midnight our time to tell me what people were bidding that I bid from when I was half asleep. Oh, he just had you on the phone then. <laughs> yeah, he called me. So how does Will get the invite? Why does Will get the invite? I know Will likes to hunt ducks. He's a good guy. Um, and I thought he'd be the perfect person to ask. Laird, you being the CEO of Safari Club International and the pact, right? You're the, you're, you're the foundation, the foundation and SCI. And SCI. Yeah. Um, how amazing is it to you of, you have a CPA, you have an attorney and a judge. What actually, what was your, I know you're an entrepreneur. I know you're a businessman, but what was your education? Well, I, I graduated from Delta State University with a, a business degree and I worked for the corporate world. And then I got into private equity and then I was a volunteer for SCI for over 30 years on the chapter level as a chapter president coming up through the executive committee and all that through SCI. And then when the opportunity uh, presented itself for, to become CEO, it was, it was a natural fit for me, I thought. And, and we worked, were able to work things out. And I've been here a little over three years now. So, so does time. it still tickle you a little bit that you, you see all the different walks of life that are part of the hunting heritage and part of the SCI family? Yeah, I mean, Safari Club International is worldwide. And, and people get hung up over the fact that it's only about Africa and that's not the case at all. 60% of our work is done right here in the United States and safari just means journey. That's a Swahili word for journey. And it doesn't matter if it's a journey from one County to the next in your state or one state to the next uh, in the U S or even from the United States to Canada or from one continent, whether you're going to hunt in Europe or Asia or New Zealand or Africa, wherever the case may be, it's a journey. And, and that's what it's all about is the experience. And in today's day and age, it's, it's about conservation and the experience along the way. I think that it's kind of cool, Will, that hearing you, you're, I think you're younger than, are you about my age? Are you in your forties? Yeah, I'll, I'll admit to being in my forties. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm 40, I'm 48. Okay. So we're the same age. Yeah. Okay. So. I figured you're in your fifties. Okay, oh good. my! Hey, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. I saw how long it, the... I saw how long it took him to get out of that pit I'll, today. I'll, I'll play nice. I'll play nice. Um, I hear we've told a lot of hunting tales. You've been all over the world at such a young age. All three of you have, but isn't it kind of cool though that you could tell stories about being in Ethiopia and chasing uh, some of the wild game that inhibits Ethiopia? inhabits of Ethiopia yeah. inhibits inhabits and then all of a sudden you're in Northern California which you know I talked about a little bit last night at the dinner I think it was before you guys got there but not a lot of people fly into the state of California to hunt which is weird not to hunt anything I guess there's there's some game that people will come here for but waterfowl is few and far between a lot of people don't know what California has to offer just like a lot of people in the continental United States probably don't know what Ethiopia has to offer the hunter and I think that's what's so cool about Safari Club International is that they bring all of that ideology and that mindset together that 
there's opportunities out there everywhere. I mean, you're over, you're almost 70 countries, Laird. You've talked about at least 30 countries yeah. at 48 years old, and you're at I least have 30, no 40, idea. So, w- way up there though, right? Oh, absolutely. I yes. mean, there's so much hunting opportunity, and here we are meeting each other in the state of California in this whole world of opportunity. And I think that that's what I'm so blown away and enamored with, with the Safari Club International is that they bring that together. I would never know either one of you, not to say ever, but if it wasn't for SCI. And I think that that's a big, a big part of the culture that we could become such fast friends over widgeon ducks and speckle belly geese in California. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's one thing about hunting again, whether it's in California or Alabama or, Ethiopia or in the South Pacific, you're you're going to places that are not tourist destinations. Now, maybe maybe they sound like a tourist destination. You know, when I go home Monday and tell people I've been to California, you know, they'll probably want to know if I saw any movie stars. Well, obviously, we're, you know, a million miles away from where the movie stars are. Well, I got Chad. See that? Um, But, you know, you, you get to go see places that people just basically don't get to go see. I mean, sometimes there's, you know, no people within hundreds of miles. So coming out here, um, and I've actually, I've been to California three times. Two of them were for hunting. Um, but you know, it, it's, it's interesting to me to see a, this part of the state, you know, I had, I knew this was here. Uh, I knew about it because of waterfowl. I've actually hunted with a gentleman in Cameroon years ago who was from this area. And he talked about the fantastic duck hunting that they had in, in, in the Valley. Uh, and I couldn't believe it. Um, and you know, kind of got on my list as someplace I'd like to go someday. When I talk to my friends out here, they are always talking about the opportunities for, you know, the different species of elk and, uh, uh, the bird shooting here in this area. So, you know, I mean, it's, it's hunting gets you places that you would not otherwise go. What is it, Larry, that you love about waterfowl hunting? Cause again, you've seen all the sheep, you've killed grand slams, you've killed grizzlies, you've killed a lot of big game all over the world. You've killed the Dane, the, the big five, I suppose in Africa. <laughs> what is it about a little duck that gets you going? You know, they're so colorful and to watch them working decoys, there's just something about it that fascinates me, but they're, you know, these, these ducks of the various species are just so beautiful. Uh, that there's just something that's always had my attention, even when I was a little kid. Is that the same for you, Larry? Like, I, I, I assume that part of it that you love is the camaraderie because you are a trash talker. I mean, you, you do get on me a little bit about my yeah. calling. I get that. But, yeah. but that, I mean, is that a big part of it? Because turkey hunting, you're quiet. Deer hunting, you're in a stand by yourself. You're quiet. When you're putting a stock on a water buffalo, it's not like you're sitting there ribbing each other, right? You're, it's serious time. Duck hunting's got that kind of that cool social factor to it, right? Yeah, absolutely. The camaraderie is what it's all about. I mean, to needle you every chance I get is enjoyable. I mean, that's just part of it. And uh, we did a lot of that this morning, but you know, it, it's sitting there in the blind and watching the ducks work in the decoys. And, and when you've got a good caller, unfortunately we didn't have that this morning. It's an opportunity to really watch the ducks work and see what's going on and, and, and talk to one another and, and tell stories in the blind during the downtime because there is going to be downtime there. You're not going to have ducks and geese working a hundred percent of the time. And it's a chance to get to know somebody and get to experience maybe a, a trip that you haven't been on that they have and, and the stories that they've got to tell about it. So camaraderie is a big part of it. It doesn't matter if you're in a pit blind in an open field or in flooded timber, you can still sit there and tell jokes and needle one another every chance you get that type of thing. What would you Laird, how would you define or describe Rocky Merlot to Larry and Will before they got out here? How would you define that man or, or what he means to you now? Well, I mean, I met Rocky last year when I was out here and, and we filmed a show last year. And, and you know, this part of, the, of California is really 
a, a diamond in the rough from a waterfowl standpoint. And, and we had three funnels or, or tornadoes, as they call it, uh, last year that were all on top of us with snow geese. And, and we really had a great time. And, and Rocky's got an incredible setup here. You know, he's, he's a, a very well-known farmer. His family's been here for, for a long time. But he's really got a great operation here for waterfowl. And he's just a great person in general. I mean, his, his heart is really in it. We were at the California Waterfowl Association banquet last night where you and I both spoke, and you did a great job, by the way. And, you know, it was great to see the excitement from Rock and all the people that were in that room talking and, and the camaraderie that was going on there uh, about waterfowl hunting and, and, and all that goes with it. And in this part of the world is just kind of lumped together with the guilt by association factor with Los Angeles or San Diego type of thing. When this really, you know, here in, in this part of California is just like where I was raised in Mississippi. I mean, it's good to people that are very friendly and, and you're happy to help and do what they can in order to make sure that you're successful. And rock is just the epitome of that. He wants to make sure that you're successful. He has really got his heart and his mind and his soul into waterfowl and waterfowl hunting and he actually went deer hunting this morning we saw him just a few minutes ago and he went blacktail hunting this morning instead of waterfowl hunting but uh, he's really got a great operation and that's what this part of california has gentleman i was talking to last night at the banquet went went um wild quail hunting and he, he he took two different species of quail last night and then anna v was here she was hunting she had shot pheasants yesterday afternoon and then you got duck and goose season open as well as deer season open up here and you've got all of that. And then one gentleman was going to fish for blue tuna, I think is what he said yeah, last night. But but Rock is really one of the uh, top shelf guys that is, are in this part of the world that really has a fantastic operation. Here. Will, how do you measure an experience like the last 48 hours? Because um, there's a lot of anticipation. I think I can read into you a little bit that you're kind of a competitive person. Um, you, you've challenged yourself with 410s as opposed mm-hmm. to a 20 or a 28 or a 12. You, you film your hunts, which I wanted to get into a little bit about um, the time it takes, the editing, the, the breakdown of video. Why do you do that? Is it for memories? Is there, some, is there some agenda with that? But how do you measure a hunt like this when not everything goes perfect? Mother Nature might not cooperate. The birds might be, you know, hitting this field one day, but they're not patterned very well because they just got here. They're on dry one day, and then all of a sudden it gets up to 87 degrees, so they go to, to go to the water. How do you measure the experience? Do you get frustrated when things don't go right? What? How do you judge an experience like this? Well, I don't get frustrated. I try never to get frustrated, but you know, my, my grandfather used to say, never plan anything around a duck or a goose. He said, because they'll, 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 you know, they'll leave you high and dry every time. So never plan anything important around a duck or a goose. But no, I mean, I get that they're, they're, they're birds, they're waterfowl, they're unpredictable. Uh, but, you know, as far as, um, you know, for me, you know, it, it, you kind of go through these phases as a hunter, you know, early on, if I, if I was here 20 years ago, uh, 25 years ago, I'd probably have a totally different feeling than I have right now. I'm easy these days. I mean, I like to do well. I like to succeed. I like to, you know, plan for success and then and then execute. But, you know, you can't control everything. So I'm, I'm just glad to be out here in a good place with good guys. Um, you know, I can look back and think back and you're going to remember that shot where, um, you know, you shot one a little further than maybe you should have, but you still killed it stone dead or one that surprised you that you got on lightning fast and managed to get it killed without even thinking about it. Just, you know, the reflexes and the instincts kicked in. Um, so that to me becomes kind of the measuring stick on a, on a, a hunt like this where we are grinding a little bit and struggling a little bit. Um, you know, but it's, 
I was impressed to see when I walked in the door and kind of surprised to see, you know, like all the equipment and the, you know, everything that it takes to put together what y'all do. Um, Cause when I film, you know, it's, it's very basic, very rudimentary means, you know, GoPro, Tacticam, things like that. Uh, but, but seeing the production quality set up and the amount of manpower it takes and the attention to detail, uh, that's, that's, that's been a cool part of this experience for me. That's awesome. Thank you yeah. for realizing that, noticing it. Um, Larry, do you, you, you heard Will mention different levels. I think they're kind of, kind of maturity levels in your hunting career where it used to be piles make smiles for me and you had to show all the dead ducks mm-hmm. and straps. And I never really wanted to show the blood. I always wanted to show the ethics and be ethical and have respect for the animal and compassion. But now it's like I could take a picture with Laird, my good friend today, with three widgeon and put that picture. Like I, I made this vow to myself about 15 months ago <laughs> to print every picture on my phone. And then I moved to my brothers and I moved to my mom's and I'm just putting together these leather bound photos. There's something about a picture when it's not on your phone. Mm-hmm. It's like my mom and dad used to have when, a, when, a, when our house almost burnt down in a Nevada fire one time. I'm, the first thing, the only thing my mom went after was the photo albums and the frames on the walls. That's all she cared about. So that kind of was my thinking that I'm mm-hmm. gonna print these out in case my phone goes down someday. So the pictures mean everything to me, but it doesn't have to be that pile pick anymore or the 200 inch mule deer anymore, or the 86 inch antelope mm-hmm. in Nevada, which I love big antelope, but I just like the story, the camaraderie and, and everything that goes into it. When did that start to change for you, assuming that you were relentless on them at one point in your hunting career? I know it's hard to say, but over, over the years though, it's become more important to me to go with my kids, my grandkids, uh, and hang out with friends. And, you know, I really don't care at this point, whether we killed a duck or not. We were sitting in the blind this morning, laughing our asses off, excuse my French there, okay. having a grand old time, uh, just, you know, just enjoying the outdoors. And, you know, you, you get to see all these things that you just don't get to see at home. And, and that's what means something to me. Uh, you know, there probably was a time some years ago when I was, when I, it was, was more important to me to shoot all the stuff but it's not any longer and i really don't care as long as i had a good time and i've had a fantastic time here and i thank you that for that i'm so glad you guys came i appreciate you guys buying the hunt laird what does it mean to have the chapters be supported like they are through whether it's the donation of the hunt talk talk to me about that infrastructure how it gets down to the bidding and what it means to you personally. I know that I know how it happens. I didn't mean to make it sound like I'm trying to the execution part of it, but what does it mean to see, for you to be the CEO, to see it come like, Hey Chad, would you consider donating a hunt and then working with Mr. Gene and then meeting Larry now after he purchased it and he brings Mr. Will. And then you come out for it cause you're friends with all of them. It's just like, a, it's hard to describe how all of that takes place, but what does it mean to you? Well, I mean, first of all, we have SCI has almost 200 chapters and they're the lifeblood of, of Safari Club International. I mean, most people don't realize that all the money that's raised at these banquets and, and things of that nature, 70% of it stays right in the local community. And 30% is sent to the mothership, to the corporate office that helps us fund advocacy and, and make sure that we have the right personnel to to fight to make sure that hunting continues as we know and love. But 70% stays in the local community from all of these chapters and that's the key. And it's important that we get the youth involved locally, that we get the shooting sports in a local community involved, that we get hunters for the hungry and all the meat that's taken 
that's in excess, somebody doesn't want it or need it, that it is used for a special purpose. But most of these other organizations, when they have banquets and things of that nature, they send all the money back to the corporate office. That's not the case with SCI. 70% of it stays right there in the community, and then the rest of the, the money is used for, like I said, our advocacy efforts in Washington, D.C., putting together our magazine that's an award-winning magazine that's got some great articles and things of that nature in it, and also to, to, to continue to grow SCI worldwide. So does it mean something to you to be able to participate in the hunts with the members and the friendships that you've made over the years? Because again, you're, you're a busy man. Like if I told the audience, the listening audience, what happened for you to get here and where you've been and your luggage and your rifle and this, and that, you know, everywhere that you went before here, um, you're going to be here for less than 36 hours, less than two days. And you're back on a jet flying East to get back to another event. Does it, does it, is it wearing you down? Does it ever get old? No. And I, and I got to tell you, it's like hunting. If you, I still shake to this day when I kill a deer and when I kill any animal and, and the enjoyment of today's hunt, for example, that's what drives you. And I want to make sure that that's there for my kids and my grandkids and my great grandkids and everybody else's as well. And that's what I get up and do it for every single day. It's not a chore. I'm excited about it. You know, and they go, do you ever get a weekend off or something like that? And, you know, I don't want a weekend off. I want to keep doing and keep going so that we can continue to enjoy the sport that we love each and every day. And that's what drives me. When it when I get tired of it or when it doesn't cause me to shake, I mean, I was deer hunting up in Michigan before I came here. And I shot a, a monster deer. And I got to tell you, I was shaking so bad. I was, you know high-fiving the, you know, the, the guy that was with me and everything else. And my knees were shaking and, and I was just more excited then than I think that I was when I killed my first deer at nine years old. So I think that that's, that still is in me and still drives me. And, and I don't see it going away anytime soon. Do you Larry anytime soon? Absolutely not. I mean, and, and going out with taking my grandkids and seeing the excitement in their eyes, like my eight year old grandson just killed an alligator on my ranch last weekend and just seeing the excitement in his face. And he said to me, he goes, pops, when I go to college, I'll come down here every weekend and go hunting with you. You know, you, you can't buy that anywhere, you know, and, and it builds a relationship with your family, your friends that you just can't get anywhere else. And then kids are a big part of why we do what we do, but it's also time together one-on-one time with them because they're not on their phones they're not playing games they're not watching tv or whatever the case may be and, and kids just like we did grow through stages they come up and they want to hunt with you all the time then they go off to college and then they you know want to start getting back into it and then they start a family and they're in a career so then they come back into it. so we, we did the same thing as we were growing up but keeping them engaged there and having the opportunity to take them somewhere and i leave it to them I'm going, whether you want to go or not, it's up to you, but I'm going. And, you know, nine times out of 10, they'll go. And so that's, that's the key. Have you left anything on your menu, Will, that's going to keep you going in this lifestyle and this culture? Because again, for such a young age, and I know that all of you are at the same point and get the same, probably the same point in your life, but you've done a lot. Is there anything left that you think that you're going to have the same attitude when you're, you know, when you get to be upwards and in your sixties or seventies and eighties, do you want to keep hunting through it? Or is it, are you going to, are, are you going to move on to golf? No, no, no golf. I, I've already done as much golfing as I'm going to do in my life. I've, I've, I've retired from golf. Uh, fortunately I've had a little more luck hunting than I had golfing. No, I'm going to keep going. Um, 
you know, I've, I've been lucky. I've gotten to do a lot at a relatively young age. Um, most of the things I wanted to accomplish, like in African hunting, for example, I, I've done. Um, but I still love to hunt Cape Buffalo. I want to hunt the occasional elephant. So as, as long as I'm able to put an 11-pound double rifle over my shoulder and walk 5, 10, 15 miles after Cape Buffalo in the dust and the heat, I'm going to be doing it. Uh, I love to hunt turkeys. I'm trying to shoot a, a turkey in 49 states with a 410. Um, you know, as long as I can see them and go up and down the mountains. And fortunately, I don't have to carry a, hairy, a heavy gun with a little bitty child's 410. Uh, but as long as I can, you know, get one to 35 steps and get it killed, I mean, I'm going to be doing that hopefully as long as I live. Um, you know, but as far as, you know, what's left for me, my outlook on hunting has really changed a lot in the last 10 or 15 years because I've gotten to do a lot. Um, you know, I come back now, I'm content to go shoot, you know, one or two or three animals on a big trip. Um, I may or may not do taxidermy with those animals. I come back and I've got 10,000 new pictures on my phone and, you know, there's 50 pics of dead animals and, you know, I've got pictures of every flower I can find and bugs and butterflies and trees and people, you know, it's just a, just a different outlook as I kind of get some of those, you know, smiles and piles pictures and, and days behind me. And as I kind of mature as a hunter and, and kind of get into this phase of my hunting. Um, and, you know, I'd like to, sh I'd like to do more wing shooting, shoot more ducks, shoot more geese, um, but, you know, just do what makes me happy. And then I've got a nephew that's coming along. And I think I told Laird last night, as long as he's not a, uh, absolute knucklehead, uh, he's, he's going to have some amazing opportunities at, at an early age. Cause I'd like to start taking him to Africa and introduce him to stuff, that, all the stuff that, you know, I got to do at an early age. Larry, we're going to sum it up in a couple more minutes here. Cause I know that we got a, some specs to get after, um, you mentioned today that you have quite a few quote unquote critters mounted taxidermy wise. Do they still hold true to you when you look at them? Are you still fascinated by the reminiscing and the memories and the stories from each of those? Is that why you did it? Or has it gotten to a point to where they're just collecting dust and you're ready to see them move out? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. You know, when people go to Disney World or go to the beach or whatever, they take photographs to remember things. And us as hunters, we often, while we do take photographs, we uh, we often mount things for two reasons. One is a memory. It's our, it's our souvenir, if you will. But the other thing is to honor the animals. I have a really hard time shooting something and not mounting it because I, I think it's disrespectful. But I've, I have somewhat changed over the years. I'm filming a lot more hunts now. Um, I feel I don't know, probably a dozen safaris. I don't even know. Um, I filmed in Pakistan, Tajikistan, and you can go back and actually relive things you cannot see from just a picture when you see that. And, and, and I, I watch these all the time. And uh, I, I love to reminisce about all these things because I've had some incredible experiences in some of these other countries. Laird, when you um, start thinking about the next six months of your life, um, you, you got a big change coming up within the organization, moving the national convention from Las Vegas, Nevada to music city, Nashville, Tennessee. Um, some of the stats that I've heard you discuss with this move, they really truly do fascinate me about how many hunters are this close to Nashville. Um, talk to me a little bit about the direction of this, why you did it and it, what, where do we go from here? Um, what do we have to look forward to at the convention? And what is the overall, give, talk a little bit about the four pillars and, and how the convention is going to be amazing once February of 23 rolls around. 
Yeah, we we had our very first convention fifty years ago, fifty one years now in Las Vegas, uh, at the chapter that you were that you'd made this donation to. And the other forty nine years we've been either in Reno or Las Vegas. We have not been east of the Mississippi. So the number of licensed hunters that can drive to Reno or to uh or, or to, to Las Vegas, Nevada are, you know, minuscule compared to the licensed hunters that can drive in a day's drive to Nashville. You're talking less than 100,000 that can get to Reno or, or, or Las Vegas versus multiple millions of licensed hunters that uh, can drive within a day's drive to Nashville. And we're spreading our wings. Safari Club International was really a behind-the-scenes for a long-time organization that was working with congressmen and women to, to make sure that we protected the right to hunt. But now we're really out there spreading the word about who we are. And I think that... You know, if if there's any two organizations that you should belong to in the United States, number one should be NRA, you know, protecting your right to keep and bear arms. And number two is Safari Club International, the right for us to keep hunting. And we're first for hunters. And, and that's what we do is to make sure that we're able to hunt, not just in the United States, not just in North America, but worldwide. And that's what we're all about. And that's why we need to communicate what we do each and every day with our advocacy group and everything involved with that. And if we could spread our word or when we spread our, our word about what we do and how we go about doing it to the masses that will be in attendance in Nashville. And, and, you know, we've, we're almost completely sold out from a hotel room standpoint. We are sold out from a vendor standpoint with the exhibitors already. And this is just, um, October and, and the conventions, February 22nd through the 25th of next year. But we're expecting a huge crowd in Nashville to completely take over Nashville and, and be all about hunting and all that we do from a hunting standpoint. But you've got the membership as a pillar. you got advocacy as a pillar. You've got conservation as a pillar. And, and you've got convention as a pillar uh, as part of what we do at SCI. And we're wanting to make sure that we're able to, to communicate that and spread the word there in Nashville. Safariclub.org. Become a member. Register for the convention. you got to get your hotel rooms now. As this episode of the Foul Life podcast, it's called Foul Thoughts, brought to you by Safari Club International. As it airs, things are filling up fast. The Safari Club hot seat, last question for each of our guests today. Will Chevy, Dodge, or Ford go? Toyota. Oh, gosh. Oh. Larry, best rock and roll band of all time. Go. ACDC. Laird, Memphis, Carolina, Kansas City, or Texas Barbecue? Go. Memphis. Oh, oh wow. Memphis. Far and away. I mean, that's not even the next question. Give me another. Give me a hard one. That wasn't even a hard question. That was a layup. Right. I mean, we're, we're, we're the true barbecue capital of the world in oh, Memphis. What are you talking know. about? I don't know. We're kids. not mustard based. We're not oil and vinegar based. We're dry in, rub based. We're dry rub. And we got wet rubs. I mean, Memphis is by far and away. The best you heard barbecue. Laird Hammerlin say Memphis is the best barbecue in the world. I I don't know if Franklin in Austin, Texas is going to buy this with his brisket. That's beef. Will, That's were you beef. trying to we're say something? That is well, beef. I was I was going to tease you and say four ten. 12 gauge or 20 gauge <laughs> oh i know i know it doesn't matter he can't <laughs> as long as they make it in this is the foul life podcast safari club's foul thoughts thanks to our guest mr larry mr will mr laird it was a great hunt here in california check out safariclub.org they are first for hunters working daily behind the scenes and check out the brand new safari club international podcast hosted by my friend mr ben cassidy you're going to enjoy it going to be a lot of information of what's going on behind the scenes in each of the states around the world when it comes to hunters rights our freedoms 
and the longevity of this culture so we can pass it down from generation to generation. Thank you all for being a part of the Foul Life Podcast. Check out brand new episodes of Benelli's The Foul Life airing right now exclusively on the Outdoor Channel. We're taking off quick today. That's a 30-minute rundown of a little bit of Safari Club in California opening week in 2022. Thank you, Rock Merlot, Merlot Waterfowl. Thank you, The Crush Italian Restaurant. It's been an amazing week so far. We can't wait to see you guys out on the road. Chad Belding, thank you all very much. Bye.